Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290. Or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense. And you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right. You're here listening to Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker. And how come I have no sound coming through my soundboard? What the heck is going on here? All right, can you hear me out there? Uh, Gary, if you can hear me, just post in the uh, chat room, because I am not showing my soundboard as having any sound. Anyway, you're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie. And right now, Curtis is not with me, my co-host. He is part of the Florida recount. He got called in today to his district, and he is hand-counting the ballots with everyone else. 
So uh, hopefully he'll be with us in the second half of the show. And we've got a surprise today. You know, um, I booked this person, David Conover, for this film, Behold the Earth. I actually did not know what it was about. And I watched it. And I watched it a second time. And I watched it a third time. And I started picking it apart. Uh, so this poor guy has no idea what he is walking into when he calls in. Uh, it happens to be one of these climate change people. Uh, and it's, it's, we're going to have a lot of fun with this one because we have coming on Gregory Wrightstone, who is the author of Inconvenient Facts. He's going to come on as the science part of it. And to debunk it, we're going to have also another gentleman with us. And let me get his name up here because I only booked him just a little while ago. He happens to be a friend of Gregory Wrightstone's. And he is, um, let me get his name right, Dr. E. Calvin Biesner. And he's the founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Allowance for the Stewardship of Creation. So we're going to have one coming at him from the scientific side and another coming at him from the biblical side. So it's going to be very, very, very interesting. I want to welcome everyone that's listening up on Facebook and YouTube. I can see that's up nicely. Those that are starting to pop in here to Blog Talk Radio. And as far as I'm going to do, wing it so far on my own until Curtis can get to join us. So anyone that listens to the show knows that we start off each and every show with a uh, dedication to a fallen hero. And I'm sorry if the video is a little bit behind, but I'm trying to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. I'm not doing it too well. So today's dedication is going to go off to police officer Amy Caprio of the Baltimore County Police Department in Maryland. Her end of watch was Monday, May 21st of this year. And this is from the Baltimore Sun, written by Tim Prudente and Catherine Rents, and it reads, The bagpipes began. The crowd hushed, and hundreds of police officers rose in a rustle of blue dress. A dress bands shrouded their badges as they watched the casket pass by holding the body of the Baltimore County police officer, Amy Caprio. They watched the police pallbearers push her flag-draped casket into Mountain Christian Church in Jopa. More than 1,000 people came for the funeral of the first Baltimore County policewoman killed in the line of duty. Caprio would have celebrated her 30th birthday only two days later on Sunday. Her life was just beginning, Governor Larry Hogan told the crowd. He said she was killed in a heinous crime. Caprio was called Monday, May 21st in the afternoon to investigate a suspicious car in a quiet neighborhood cul-de-sac in Perry Hall. There, she was allegedly run down and fatally injured by a 16-year-old from West Baltimore in a stolen Jeep. Dante Harris' lawyers said that the teen was scared and trying to drive away. He is charged with murder and held without bail. Three other teens who went with him, police said, to allegedly burglarize homes in the suburbs were also charged with murder. The sudden and senseless killing left Caprio's family and fellow officers grasping for answers. The night before her funeral, the Reverend Luke Erickson searched for the words to comfort them. He wrote her eulogy. When you know it's coming, your body has time to prepare, he said. We didn't have that. Not only was life cut short, there was no time. 
By morning, black and blue balloons dotted the road off the highway to the church. A police helicopter circled overhead. Families spread blankets on the roadside, bringing flags and homemade signs saying, Hero, H period, E period, R period, O period, to wave for the funeral procession. Fire trucks and ambulances line the ramps to the highway. People crowded the overpasses on Interstate 95, a community emerging to honor her as the hearse passed by. Inside the church, a guitar broke the quiet. The crowd was united and invited to join in an old folk song popularized by the birds. To everything, turn, turn, turn. Caprio's family requested the song, the pastor said. So he opened his Bible to read from the book of Ecclesiastes, where the lyrics came from. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, to die, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. The pastor told the crowds the scripture holds a promise. After this time for mourning, there will be time for hope, he said. The grief may last for weeks, months, years, a season, he said. But one day will come a time of renewal. They listened in silence and some cried. Four of Caprio's fellow officers told the crowd of a promising career. As the precinct's officer of the month in March, she nabbed a pair of alleged package thieves after investigating shipping boxes strewn along the roadside. They spoke of her blue eyes and a sharing of pizzas on the hood of patrol cars. They spoke of her royalty to the Pittsburgh Steelers, of her days playing soccer, of her fondness of Harry Potter, and how she never turned down a call for a lost dog. Her own dog was named Doodle. A graduate of Lock Raven High School and Townsend University, Caprio would have celebrated her fourth year as a Baltimore County police officer in July. Condolences have poured in from around the world, her chief told the funeral crowd. Baltimore County Police Chief Cherry Sheridan said he received calls from the White House Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Caprio was a 10th officer killed in the 144-year history of the County Police Department. She was the first officer to die in the line of duty since Jason Snyder was gunned down while serving an arrest warrant in Kentonsville five years ago. His father, Charles Schneider, watched Caprio's funeral procession. Online, he wrote, Jay and Amy didn't know each other in life, but sadly, they know each other now. His hands shaking, Tim Caprio stepped before the crowd, took a deep breath, and addressed those who came to mourn his wife's killing. He didn't think he could find the strength to speak, he told everyone. And then he reflected and decided his wife would want him to grow a pair of cojones. The crowd laughed. He spoke in stops and starts, but his voice was firm when he said his wife made him a better man. She thought of him as her project, and they laughed again. He said she loved animals so much that she would ask him to skip the scene in The Lion King when Mufasa was killed. Again, they laughed. Then he said he loved her. She would be his wife forever. The funeral procession 
Hundreds of police cars, motorcycles, and civilians stretched more than five miles. They arrived at Delaney Valley Memorial Garden Cemetery. Police and firefighters from across Maryland and beyond lined the entrance. Caprio was the 72nd police officer or firefighter buried in the gardens since 1977. The last one was Sean Souter, the Baltimore City police detective who was shot and killed six months ago. Gail Duncan, 62, stood under a shade tree across the street. She came to pay her respects to Souter and now to Caprio. Without them, this world would be in complete chaos, she said. Lisa Livingston, 56, had driven down from Exus. Her daughter plans to become a police officer. This can happen to any of us, Livingston said. I just feel awful for the family. But it's awful, awful for both families, the family of the officer and the mother of the driver. Before them, blue uniforms filled the cemetery where the burial ended. And when it ended, the crowd left and the officers drove back to the streets they patrolled. A busy Memorial Day weekend was coming. The next calls awaited. And to add this in, so you know who Caprio really was. This is an Associated Press article, and it reads, A Maryland family had lost a colorful handmade quilt to holiday package thieves and was thrilled when a Baltimore County police officer caught the thieves and the quilt was returned to them. This week, they brought the quilt with them to the officer's wake as a way to honor her. Officer Amy Caprio was killed when she was run over by a teenager as she investigated a report of a suspicious vehicle. The Baltimore Sun reports that Amy Santo Pietro attended Caprio's viewing, carrying the quilt made by San Pietro's mother-in-law and mailed to her 80-year-old daughter. Police said Caprio's investigation tracked down the package thieves and helped close dozens of theft cases across the county. San Pietro said she feels very indebted to Caprio. Today's show is dedicated to police officer Amy Caprio and to all police officers and first responders, be they law enforcement, corrections, firefighters, or emergency services. Is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in the military from the birth of this nation through tomorrow and into its future. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one of them.
the heck with it just go to the name of the show put a dash in the middle southern hyphen sense.com i'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick annie and right now my co-host is one of those involved in the florida recount so he is absent so i'm flying solo so please bear with me as i try to fudge this as best as i can um i've got three special guests on at the same time this morning so i'm going to be herding cats here so bear with me as i bring in the first person as not necessarily recognizing phone numbers too well. So let's bring in area code 954. You're here on Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick. To whom am I speaking? Hello, Ann. This is Cal Beisner with the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Thanks very much for welcoming me to the show. Oh, it is our pleasure. And I'm just putting your name in here so I know who I'm talking to when I click the button. I do believe <laughs> sure. I've got... <laughs> Like I said, I have to apologize. I'm flying solo because uh, my co-host is involved in the recount. And uh, normally I have him helping me do all this. So <laughs> I'm trying to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. All right, let's well, bring in I'm our next victim. I'm honored to be one of the cats you're trying to herd. <laughs> <laughs> next victim, I believe this is our friend Gregory Wrightstone. Is it? Hi, Annie. It's Greg. Hi, Gregory. How- how are you doing? Welcome back aboard. And let's bring in our final victim. Uh, he is the producer of Behold the Earth, uh, David Conover. I do have, believe I have this correctly, do I not? That's right, Annie. This is David. Uh, hi, Cal. Hi, Greg. Hi there. Hello, David. Hi, Greg. Uh, all right. Um, I'm going to start with you, David, uh, because I watched your film several times. And uh, Gregory and I, I consider I consider him an old friend. And we've got Calvin now a new friend. Um, I watched it and I found it interesting. You've got some good points in it, but there's other places I'd like to debate. That's why I brought Gregory and Dr. Cal with us. Um, yes, the Bible, your film is about our stewardship of the earth, showing it in a biblical manner, and which is what the Bible does teach us to do from Genesis all the way on through. Um, but I do question your cl- climate change stance. And that's where we're going to have the the, um, the debate on. First off, explain to me uh, Behold the Earth, the film that you have, and why you you, you created it. Yeah, um, so it's a uh, it's a film. We refer to it as a musical documentary. Um, it's a, a series of conversations that I had with um, both uh, Christians and scientists, and some that are Christians and scientists. And it is uh, really reflects um, you know thoughts that they've had um, and 
uh, scripture that they draw on to to support those thoughts um, and those beliefs, and um, really kind of walks through uh, what the connection to the to the outdoors is uh, today for for them. And um, they, you know, they speak about it from when they were small children uh, and time they spent outside to. Uh, to the present, and they've seen changes, and the film essentially is an opportunity for them to describe those changes and to do so in the context of their faith. Um, so it's about a, it's about an hour-long film, and uh, available uh, you know for streaming for people who want to view it either at home or with their church or school. Yeah, well, um, in the start of the film, uh, David, you had Theo Colburn. Um, she has now since passed. Um, she stated, which I found very, very interesting, science, science is so unique and powerful that is a, it's a threat. Why would science be a threat if it's helped improve so many millions of lives today? Well, I, I think her meaning by that was, um, you know, oftentimes science is seen by people as being something that's kind of happening somewhere else, and they don't... Um, you know, we don't always know what led to certain hypotheses or certain findings. And, you know, and then all of a sudden we hear, uh, you know, a new question or a new finding and we say, where, where did that come from? And I think that question can feel, you know, that can feel threatening for people. I think that's what she meant. Well, I'm going to bring in uh, Dr. Cal. Um, I have a hard time pronouncing the last name, Dr. How is it pronounced? <laughs> Forgive me. Uh, Beisner. 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 Okay. And um, I'm going to get this wrong. I know I'm going to get this wrong. You're with the Cornwell Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And I've often heard people say that science and religion are two separate things. But God gave us science. And he gave us free will to use that science, that knowledge, uh, morally and ethically, didn't he? He gave us free will. Yes, he's, he's not only given us science, he's also given us free agency and, and responsibility, accountability to him. Um, you know, if you understand the history of science, you know that science arose as a systematic endeavor uh, involving hypothesis and experimentation and careful conf- uh, comparison of observation with hypothesis. Uh, science arose as a systematic endeavor only once in history and only in one place, and that was medieval Europe. And the reason for that is that medieval Europe was dominated by a biblical worldview that says that a rational God designed a rational and an ordered universe to be understood by rational creatures made in his image. So we really have the biblical worldview to thank for the development of science, which has indeed been a tremendous blessing to us. Um, You know, religion and science need not be in conflict. Uh, They can be when either one of them purports to speak to issues that really are outside of its own particular sphere of of, uh, discourse, so to speak. I mean, if, if I were to try to tell you that I could derive from the Bible the table of the elements of chemistry, uh, you would know immediately that I am uh, going way beyond the text of the Bible. Uh, Meanwhile, if as a uh, uh, physicist I were to tell you that the laws of physics somehow or other uh, entailed that there could be no uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit 
uh, who d exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, you would know immediately that I was going way beyond the bounds of what physics can tell us. Nonetheless, there are a lot of places where science and, and religion can speak together to us, and among those are issues about our stewardship of this wonderful, beautiful creation that God has, has uh, put us in and over which he has given us a dominion that we should exercise in a godly way that, that enhances its fruitfulness and its beauty and its safety to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. Well, Gregory, I want to bring you in on this one because in the film, David, you have where CO2 is bad. And, uh, Gregory, you've written your book, Inconvenient Facts, uh, which is an excellent primer uh, for anyone. But, Gregory, look at what's happening out in California. You've got three wildfires uh, because climate alarmists have not allowed us to do what the Native Americans did was to cull the forest, to be good stewards of it. You know, for the spotted owl, we no longer do the burn of the undergrowth to keep keep our forestry healthy. Yeah, I, David, this is Greg, and, and I don't think we plugged his book yet, the name of it, did we? Or did you? Behold uh, the Earth. I think Behold I, the Earth. Yes. Behold yeah, the Earth. That, that's Behold a film, actually. It's a, a, it's fil a film. The film. Yeah. The film, yeah. correct. And I'm I'm going to have to plead that I have not seen it yet, uh, but I plan to. Uh, look forward to look, looking at it. And and since I've not seen it, I'm I my understanding, if I'm reading into this correctly, is that uh, you believe that uh, our additions of CO2, as as do many, uh, believe that our additions of CO2 are are uh, unnecessarily warming the earth, and that's going to lead to uh, bad consequences. Am I, am I right in that? Well, the uh, climate change is certainly a, a part of this film. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's part of uh, what is very much on the minds of uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who's in the film, mm -hmm. and whose work you may know, um, mm -hmm. and also uh, Ben Lowe, who's a uh, the founder of a group called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. Mm -hmm. uh, they both um, are very... Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with them, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're very engaged with climate climate issues. Uh, other parts of the film, you know, focus on other kinds of uh, impacts and, and uh, activities, outdoors, pollution, and so on. But Yeah, and I, I come at it from, uh, what I did was I'm a geologist, and uh, I didn't set out to write a book. I set out to seek the truth, because I, I knew that some of the things we were being told was just incorrect. And I've and that the book fell out of this search for the truth, um, but it's science-based. But the overarching theme of the book is that what we're actually seeing occur today on Earth is an Earth that's benefiting, that's thriving, that's prospering, and that the many of the predicted horrible things like droughts and fires, uh, tornadoes and hurricanes are just that speculation based on failed climate models. So what I do is actually in the book, look at what's actually going on. And that's when Calvin contacted me because his worldview is that we should, to take it out of a biblical context, is that we should be using all of Earth's resources uh, for the betterment of mankind and do it as good stewards. So I think both Calvin and I would say, would agree that if indeed our use of carbon dioxide was going to lead to these horrific predicted consequences, then as Christians, we, we probably should act. But what I see is actually what's happening is, is not. We, I see a, 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 an earth that's thriving, prospering, we're growing more crops, we're feeding the poor, 
uh, we're producing and lowering energy costs, which lifts people out of energy poverty. So, so that's where I come from with, with that. And neither Calvin or I dispute that climate change is happening. Of course it is. Uh, but I think from our, our, our take would be it's a, a continuation of the, the same natural forces that have been driving temperatures since the dawn of time. Yeah, well, um, first of all, I, I, I definitely uh, I have a huge respect for geology. My dad was a geologist, and I, I mean, one of the things that's always struck me about that way of uh, that, that knowledge, that body of knowledge um, that comes through the process of uh, you know doing geology is just the time frame that you are trained to yep. think and yep. and uh, and see change over. And I think. Um, you know that that really speaks to me. You know, I'm not so much of a political person per se. You know, I'm I'm a person who likes to. Uh, you know, I live in Maine. Um, I'm up here on the coast in a town of about five thousand people. And um, are you, know, you looking out your window at snow right now? I am. Yeah, it's me, snowing. Me, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> so um, that, yeah, no, that was a couple me. of nights ago, even here to, here in Western Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, I I I just I do spend. A lot of time outside, and I have seen changes. Um, you know, I, I do know what the scientists in my neck of the woods are saying about, you know, the Gulf of Maine and, and its uh, water temperature changing. And mm -hmm. um, But I, I do have to say, un unlike you, I am not a scientist. I'm a, mm -hmm. I'm a filmmaker. And I really go more by um, the amount of science that's being done. I'm in this film, you know, I talk with uh, Cal DeWitt, who's an ecologist uh, at the uh, University of Wisconsin, and you know he 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 um, you know he he very much he's, 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 he does science. Um, he looks at science. He says, you know, this is not a belief. Um, this is a process of you know, a very disciplined way of asking questions, and to those questions, findings emerge very slowly, you know, paper by paper by paper, and each paper is criticized by many different people uh, who don't know each other, and some who do, um, and those findings and questions are tested in the world, and if a finding is shown to be inaccurate, you know, a new question replaces the old one, and in the context of doing this scientific work, people... Um, you know, they, they, they run great risks if they misreport what they find with their science. So for me, it's not like a particular um, uh, refutation of, you know, mm -hmm. carbon, but it's really the, the overwhelming dominance of how much science is out there that has been peer-reviewed and looked at that is talking about, you know, cli a, a climate that is changing and that a cause behind that is human activity. That's really, that has been influential and convincing for me. If I can jump in here for just a second on this, uh, let me just remark that I, I think the overwhelming consensus in science is uh, actually in many respects fairly, uh, fairly credible, but it's not been very well represented to the public by the media. Um, the overwhelming consensus in, in science is that global average temperature has probably risen by something on the order of 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius since about 1850 or 1880. That's uh, not certainly uh, something that's catastrophic. 
the overwhelming consensus among scientists is that uh, human emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases have probably contributed something to this. Uh, that's not terribly controversial. The issues where, uh, where controversy arise are when we get to predictions of catastrophic results in the future and to just how to quantify CO2's contribution to the warming. And there, uh, the, the actual hard data kind of science as distinct from, uh, from uh, sort of soft claims in the, in the widespread literature or from climate models, uh, there the hard data are pointing towards CO2's, CO2's role being actually fairly small. I'm, I'm very familiar with, uh, with Catherine Hayhoe. And as a matter of fact, two of the senior fellows of the Cornwall Alliance are also excuse me, climatologists, Dr. Roy Spencer of the University of Alabama and Dr. David Gates of the University of Delaware. And they have actually uh, several different times publicly challenged uh, Dr. Uh, Hayhoe to a debate uh, on these issues. Uh, she has never responded to those challenges. Um, but I, I think where, where the Cornwall Alliance is, is seeing the scientific evidence point is that human emissions of CO2 probably do contribute somewhat to global warming, but little enough that it is certainly not catastrophic. And, and perhaps even more important, the, the, the best response to this seems to be not to try to reduce the CO2 emissions because the actual temperature effect of doing that is minute, but rather to uh, promote economic development that allows people to afford to adapt to whatever climate the future might have for us. You know, if you have income equivalent to, say, the bottom 5% of Americans, you can actually thrive in any climate from the, from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert or the Brazilian rainforest. If you have income equivalent to, say, uh, $2.50 a day, you can't thrive in the best tropical paradise. Uh, prosperity is a far greater protection against all kinds of risks, including risks from weather and climate than anything that we can do to try to control climate. So we at the Cornwall Alliance uh, want to see policy that recognizes the importance, especially of lifting the poor out of extreme poverty around the world. And that would be slowed, stopped, or even reversed by the kinds of, of uh, policies called for by, for example, the Paris Climate Agreement, which requires a massive uh, change of the world's energy systems from uh, the current dominance of fossil fuels, which are abundant, affordable, and reliable, and provide uh, reliable electricity especially, uh, to wind and solar, which are diffuse, expensive, and intermittent, and therefore uh, really can't provide the kind of, of uh, uh, reliable, uninterrupted electricity supply that is indispensable lifting whole societies out of poverty and keeping them out of it. Well, I think that it, uh, you know, poverty is is a big issue for 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 humanity, and I think everyone has some you know basic um, needs that have to be addressed. And I I think that um, you know how we how we choose to organize ourselves and what opportunities we um, as a as a, as a country and you know as a world 
open up for people and people open up for themselves through their own efforts and and uh, merits you know i think that that's really important and you know i i also sense and i i do have to reiterate i am a, a filmmaker um i do track and talk uh with people who are involved with the science quite a few of them um but i also and i i, I hear you know that you've thought about these these questions uh, quite a bit and i appreciate that um i think i you know i i guess one of my questions for you would be what if you're wrong i mean what what if uh what people are seeing as you know possible connections to a to a changing climate caused by human activity uh get worse yeah uh you know the same question obviously can be asked in the opposite direction and uh uh, on the one hand, what if I'm wrong? Well, even even the, the sort of uh, middle range of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predictions as to uh, climate sensitivity, uh, the amount of warming that comes from a doubling of CO2, would call for, a, for an increase in global average temperature over about the next 150 years of under two degrees Celsius. And frankly, uh, that's not likely to bring anything catastrophic. And over the, the uh, you know, roughly century and a half before then, we have all sorts of opportunities to make changes and to adapt to that. Uh, on the other hand, if, the, if those who think that we're facing climate catastrophe because of CO2 emissions turn out to be wrong, and yet, we make all sorts of efforts to substitute wind and solar for fossil fuels, well, then we're going to jack up the price of energy all over the world. We're going to slow the rate at which the poorest people in the world are able to substitute electricity for uh, wood and dried dung as their primary cooking and heating fuels. And that means we're going to trap them in severe poverty, and the high rates of disease and, and premature death that invariably accompany that severe pro uh, poverty. So I think, the, uh, I, I think the risks of what if you're wrong are probably bigger for the, what we might call the alarmist community than for what we might call the, the, the lukewarmer community, which is where I find myself and where uh, the many yeah, different scientists who are with the Cornwall Alliance tend to find themselves. And I will. Well, uh, let me jump in here, uh, Gregory. Uh, in your book, you you chart the temperature flows over the several millennia, and you show that at the time Christ walked the earth, it was far warmer than it is now, and there was yeah, no that, major catastrophes. Right. That, that's right, a right? good point. Yes, that's a it's a it's a great great point, David. Is that. Uh, if we look through history, and if we don't go back and see what's, as a geologist, I tend, as your dad was, I tend to look at things in the big picture. And that's quite often overlooked in, in climatology and the study and talk about, about climate change. We only look at the last weather event, the last decade, last hundred years. But yet if you look back the last 4,500 years, each warming period that we've seen in the past has been accompanied by a, a tremendous uh, bounty of harvests and crops and, and the thriving of civilizations. Uh, uh, the, the rise and fall of temperature closely correlates with the rise and fall of civilizations. Uh, and between each one when it got cold, it, it was characterized by uh, crop failure, famine, and mass depopulation just time and time again. The Greek Dark Ages, the Dark Ages, the Little Ice Age, half the population of Iceland perished. A third of the population of Europe perished. 
uh, during the Little, Little Ice Age. Really bad things happen, and we've seen that uh, each one of those warming periods that were so beneficial uh, all ended with higher temperatures than what we see today. And so, you know, if we just look at the past and see what's happened, look to as a roadmap for the future. Um, you know, I'm, uh, warming temperatures, there are lots of benefits to warming temperatures, long lengthening growing seasons. Yes, you're, you're right that the coast of Maine is going to be getting warmer, and it has. Uh, Dr. Tim Ball uh, has documented a fascinating article I just got the other day. Uh, over the last 200 years in Canada, the tree line has moved forward or has moved northward 200 kilometers. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing this warming. Uh, but again, I'll argue it's the same warming that started 300 years ago that brought us out of the death-dealing cold of the Little Ice Age. It's it's really a I look at this and see a beneficial warming. Uh, and again, I, mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I would I, add, Greg. I, I would add, Greg, that it's not only the temperatures that are expanding the range of various kinds of vegetation. It's also the increasing atmospheric CO2 concentration. You know, plants need CO2 for photosynthesis, and for every doubling of CO2 concentration, you can average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. They grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures and wetter and drier soils. They make better use of soil nutrients. They improve their fruit-to-fiber ratio, and they resist diseases and pests better. Uh, the result has been a significant greening of the planet, as is shown by satellite imagery, uh, over the period of, of alleged man-made global warming, but certainly man-made increase in CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. And it's also helped agriculture tremendously. Uh, a lot of agricultural economists estimate that uh, roughly 11 to 15 percent of the increase in agricultural crop productivity over the last 60 years can be attributed solely to the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, one major study, a uh, meta-study of, of thousands of different studies on that done over the past 50 years indicates that that, that has resulted in about $3.2 trillion of added agricultural productivity from 1960 to 2012 and would probably uh, result in about another $9.6 trillion worth of agricultural productivity added uh, over the period from 2012 to 2050. I think that's a tremendous boon, especially to the poor who are most affected by crop prices. Very yeah, good point. I, I, Very um, good point. David? I, I, well, I just, uh, I guess my thought is that, um, you know, it, it may be, I mean, I certainly, on a day like today when there's six inches of snow outside, I certainly love sitting by the fire, but uh, I do know that um, you know the waters here are, are warming significantly, and sure the lobstermen are. are not happy about it. Um, you know, when the waters warmed to the south of us, they lost their lobster catches, and uh, they're starting. You know, this summer was a real down dip. Um, you know, whether or not the activity that people have to go through to stop putting uh, CO2 and other gases, uh, you know. As you know, it's not just CO2. Methane is, and others are significantly more destructive. Um, you know, and and I think if uh, if that uh, if if those, you know, yes, it 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 could be very destabilizing. Trying to figure out how to how to deal with this. I I look, um, you know, we're we're a uh, a rural state um, for the most part, and. In a small state, you know, we got up just a one and a half million people here. 
and you know a government which is pretty responsive but in general i'm not a big um believer that that government's going to uh you know want to do something that's really difficult to do um usually it's uh and and so this whole coming together in paris to me feels like you know this is if this is uh, not an important thing you know what's the motivation for for all these countries to come together and figure out oh, that's a great question yeah, what to yeah. Do. that's a great question because there are a whole lot that's of motivations that have nothing to do hundred trillion dollar average temperature yeah it's it's uh, you know the the developing countries around the world stand to gain by the way of of redistribution of wealth from the developed countries as a, as a part of the, the Paris Agreement, uh, and those uh, who are at the heads of various uh, 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 international organizations stand to gain in terms of their their uh, power, their influence around the world. Uh, there are all kinds of different motivations that play into the Paris Agreement. But, you know, when we actually try to quantify what would be the effect of, of implementing the Paris Agreement 100% fully, well, even if, you, even if you take the assumptions of those who supported the agreement as to how much warming you get from CO2, and if you take their figures as to how much CO2 we would keep out of the atmosphere by perfect implementation of Paris, uh, the result would be a reduction of global average temperature in the year 2100 of three-tenths of one degree Fahrenheit. That's far too little to affect any ecosystem and certainly far too little to affect anything about and, human well-being. Yeah, and, 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 cost, and it's just estimated oh, – go ahead. You were going to get to there. I was yeah, going to say and, Bjorn Lomborg yeah, estimates cost, 100 trillion. Cost, yeah, and this is assuming the – Estimates the the uh, the positions of the supporters of the treaty, not the critics. The cost would be between one and two trillion dollars a year every year from 2030 to 2100. That's 70 years. That's 70 to 140 trillion dollars. That works out to 23.3 to 46.6 trillion dollars per tenth of a degree Fahrenheit of temperature reduction. And I just can't, I cannot bring myself to think that that's a good deal. I think especially when we realize that that money could instead be spent to provide purified drinking water, sewage sanitation, nutrition supplements, infectious disease control, electrification of homes and factories and businesses, safer and faster transportation, better communication, medical care, all of those different things. What we spend on A, we cannot spend on B. And so if we're going to spend a trillion to two trillion dollars every year to reduce global temperature by a tenth of a degree, uh, uh, three-tenths of a degree over the rest of this century, I just consider that as an economist a terrible waste of money. And as a Christian ethicist, I consider it a, a, just a, a, an unconscionable neglect of the need of the poor around the world. Well, I'm going to point out a little bit thing here, too, because some of the stuff you have, you have a checklist of what you can do to help care for creation. And I've gone through that list. And a lot of it I see has to do with the scam of the carbon tax, uh, the scam of the carbon footprint. You know, that's something Al Gore thought up just to make money. I mean, my buying carbon credits so I can drive my car an extra time around the block is not saving the planet. A lot of what I see in here is also aimed at 
forcing on Agenda 21. I know it's called something else now, but it still is Agenda 21 in sheep's clothing. You're forcing people to live in urban areas where you have even a larger carbon footprint than those that, of us that live in, live in the suburban or, or rural areas. We are better stewards in the rural and suburban areas because we use less of a, quote, carbon footprint. We do grow our own vegetables and tend to the land. You're not going to have that in an urban area. So I, I see a lot of Agenda 21. I see a lot of the Al Gore carbon tax scam in there. Um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you – I'm trying to think of the right word, and it's escaping me. Mm. How do you explain that? Uh, I'm not sure your question. Well, as I see it, I see the influence of the UN's Agenda 21 heavily in here, as well as the scam that Al Gore thought up about this carbon tax. Now, if you're going to spend extra money to purchase this carbon credit so that you can use more energy that you claim is polluting the world. Well, I... um my, I, you know, as I said, I, I think climate, climate, uh, changing climate is part of what people talk about in this film. They also talk about other, um, you know, there's there's pollution and other things that are happening that people um, see. I mean, if you spend any time outdoors, uh, I think you 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 see changes happening. And um, you know, there was a recent study that came out that said the the amount of wildlife on the planet from 1970 until today has dropped 60%. That, that, that's a very large drop. And I, I think these changes um, really require people to reset their thinking about what, you know, what, what's happening out there. And, and it does involve asking some questions and it may involve, you know, some very difficult changes in how people are organizing our, themselves. You know, we, we started off talking uh, a good deal about the importance of science, and one of the things that I think is really important is to, to compare empirical observation science with modeling science. Uh, David, just, you just mentioned the reduction in wildlife around the world. Uh, that's often related to the whole issue of species extinction. And I'm familiar with those claims, and those claims rest almost 100% on computer models of what's uh, termed island biogeography. Uh, the assumption is that if you reduce the extent of a particular ecosystem by such and such a percent, you're going to reduce biodiversity within that eco ecosystem by another percentage. The problem is that where this has actually been tested empirically, it has never been confirmed. In fact, it has been contradicted over and over again. Uh, the idea really first arose in the 1970s with the work of E.O. Wilson and uh, Norman Myers, uh, particularly in Myers' book, The Sinking Ark. And when Julian Simon and Aaron Wildovsky challenged that and said, hey, give us not just your models, but give us the hard empirical data behind these claims of 1,000 to 2,000 to some, some people claiming 30,000 extinctions per year, uh, there were no hard data. They, they couldn't be found anywhere. So the International Union on the, you know, for the Conservation of Nature commissioned a global study focusing on especially rainforest areas because according to the models, those should be the hardest hit. And that resulted in a book called 
uh, tropical deforestation and species extinction came out, I think it was in 1991, uh, done by the IUCN. And every single chapter in there, and these were done by field, field uh, ecologists, biologists, uh, working in their own areas of, of specialization, every single chapter in there said, we began our research expecting to find high rates of species extinction in our particular regions. Every single chapter wound up saying, we didn't find any, any, period. And that was total surprise to the IUCN. Nonetheless, the models keep getting quoted as if they were evidence. No, models are not evidence. Models are hypothesis, and they must be tested by real-world observation. The real-world observation says that we are not in the midst of you know, the, the great species extinction crisis. Uh, it's, it, there is some going on, but it is nowhere near the magnitude that is popularly claimed. Well, I think, uh, Cal, I love your, your spirit of asking tough, you know, questions and, and, and being a skeptic. I think that's great. Um, and, and I'd love to see how, uh, you know, I'm not as familiar with the specifics of the science as you are. Um, I, I, am, um, I am very uh, much a proponent of field testing evidence and, uh, and maybe where you live, you know, where you walk through the woods, uh, there's just as much, um, you know, bird song as there was, uh, you know, when you were a boy. Um, it's not the case where where we are, and I think that's a question that you know everybody needs to ask but, themselves because, in a sense, you know, we're all observers and we all uh, live yeah. in places where there's other life. Um, and but but David, I, if I could. Just to interrupt just one second. One of the things I've, I've noticed with many of these uh, people's recollections, uh, they're just wrong. And I like to look at the science, the facts, and the data. Uh, for example, uh, just about everybody I talk to says, oh, the snowfalls aren't nearly as deep as when I was a child. I mean, just about everybody says that. Yeah, uh, I've heard that. Right, right. But if you actually look back and look, and I've done that, uh, many places uh, – uh, all of my relatives here are all agreed, no matter what their age was. Uh, but you go back and look at the snowfall records in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we've actually been increasing. And they look at it and they go, huh, well, that's odd. Uh, and we see the same thing with forest fires, which I talk a lot about as a great example, because everybody thinks forest fires are increasing, but in fact they've been in a long-term 100-plus year decline. And that's just that's just an absolute fact. Uh, so... When we talk about, oh, I recall hearing many more songbirds, uh, that, may be co that may be correct, but I don't buy it until I, hear the, I look at the actual evidence. And, and I had a great experience of this very thing this morning. A friend of mine in Georgia asked me, he said, he said a whole lot of his friends around, um, around Georgia keep saying, man, it is hotter every summer here than it has ever been in, in the years when I grew up. So I went and I got the raw data for July, August, September uh, temperatures, or, pardon me, June, July, August temperatures in Georgia from 1895 to this year. And guess what? There's actually a downtrend of uh, 0.026 degree per decade, uh, three quarters of a degree total over the period. 
and uh, 10 out of the last 18 years have been below the average for the total period, and five out of the last seven years have been below the average. So personal anecdotal recollection is a, a tremendously, notoriously unreliable way of trying to figure out what's going on with anything in terms of long-term trends. We need hard data instead. Yeah, so I have well, a question also, for I'll both of a, you on this respect, um, because I, oh, I, I do know can that I just you're... Can make one little observation? Sure, here? Annie, go. Can I just make yeah. one little observation? Right. <laughs> I'm letting you guys interview yourselves. Uh, anyway, but you also have to remember, as people get older, their body responds to hot and cold differently. What I could tolerate as a kid, I cannot tolerate at my age at this point in time, which is one 42. of the reasons why I left to walk the Forty-two. south. Uh, Nice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I really love that one. I've been called that one in a long time. But uh, it, it's pe- how people tolerate the hot and cold also affects their perspective. So well, go ahead. And, and also when, it, when we when we talk about snow, when you're in in third grade and a six inch snowfall comes up to your kneecap, so it looks like a lot. And that's what you remember. You remember, you know, you, you these memories that are stuck in your memory from third grade where you built these huge snow snow forts with your brother and sister. But yet, we might see the same snowfall today, and it's it's no big deal. Uh, and it's things like that. And that's what really got me with researching my book. I had preconceived notions about some of these things, like forest fires. Um, that I just assume were correct, and, to, and if you just look at this, but you need to go and look at the long-term uh, science facts and data rather than uh, personal recollections and or, or feelings. And people always they're, they're they're shocked when I show them the data on forest fires because, for example, California's uh, both the mountainous and the low-lying areas have been in decades-long decline in the number of forests, uh, forest notwithstanding fires. they're more forest fires. Excuse me. Well, I, I, you know, I do feel uh, my own experience is that there are not a lot of writers or scientists uh, out there who are who are actively publishing and, and engaged in a real rigorous way with their fields who are coming to the same findings as the two of you. Well, it's not by accident that Aristotle. It's not by accident that Aristotle defined what you just did as the the, uh, the fallacy of argumentum at populum. Uh, we don't determine truth by counting counting votes. We determine truth by hard empirical evidence, which if we're looking at science, and by rational calculation if we're in, say, mathematics or something like that. And, you know, the majority of scientists have been wrong, very wrong, many, many times in the past. If you read Thomas Kuhn's, uh, um, his, uh, uh, what, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, he gives you instance after instance, and it's, uh, it's even right up to the present. Well, um, the, really, the whole process of science is a process of getting it wrong and then trying to do better. Not and in I this think- subject. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, you're you're very focused in this one particular area of science, and I appreciate all that. Right. Gentlemen, we're, we're down we're down to our last few seconds here. I want to thank all three of you uh, for joining us, uh, David Carnover. Like I said, there are many good points in your film, uh, such as you know, and energy what's the name of the appliances, film? shutting off the lights. So there are certain good th- parts. I was just, I'm not going to tear your entire film down. It's called 
Behold the Earth, so people can find it at BeholdTheEarth.com. Um, Gregory, I'm, you're an angel, always last minute willing to come on. You have inconvenientfacts.xyz where they can get your book. And if they put in the code 1776, they can get a discount on the book. And uh, Dr. Carl Briesner, I... I'm deeply indebted for you for joining us also. You are with the, I'm going to get this wrong again, so I'll let you say it, the Cromwell. Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, cornwallalliance.org. Well, God bless you, each and one, every one of you. You do hard work. and uh, Thank you, David. We need more Yes, like thank this, you, Annie, and thank you, Greg and Cal. Appreciate it. Thank you, David and Greg and Annie, too. God bless all okay. of you. Okay, and I do... God bless. Dr. Carl Brenner, Gregory Wrightstone, and David Conover. Uh, excellent debate, excellent uh, thoughts and questions there. I hope this is our next guest in on the line. I thought it was going to be a different number. Uh, here we go. Area code 646. You're on the air live with Southern Sense. To whom am I speaking? Hi, this is Kelly McKinney in New York. Ah, you threw me off because they gave me a different area code you were going to be calling from. So that's why. Well, I called from a landline just so I could, uh, just so the fidelity would be better than my cell phone. Oh, well, you came in at the end of a very lively debate. We had uh, two people that were debunking the climate hoax and one gentleman who made a film on it. So you came in at the end of a really good one. Um, you, you know, I was hoping it was going to go now. on. I was I was really I, I was enjoying the discussion so much. And I thought, you know, um, how am I going to follow this? Right. Because that was really a <laughs> terrific discussion. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, you can follow it with your book, Moment of Truth, that just recently came out. It's an excellent book, and I don't know if your agent told me that I'm retired NYPD. I, retired I saw NYPD. that, and it, I saw that on the LinkedIn profile. Ten years you were at NYPD, right? Yeah, until I lost full use of my right arm, and they ended up replacing the shoulder twice, along with the knee, and fused my neck, and a couple of other things here and there. Wow. I walk past the refrigerator, and the magnets jump off on me, as I like to say. <laughs> where, and now, where did you work? I was in the 9-0, which is the Bushwick-Williamsburg area. Oh, my goodness. Now, that's not – and and that's not exactly the um... – you know the the safest part of the city, and 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 in those days, very very tough uh, place to work, right? Well, when I got there, yes, and then we had uh, Giuliani came in, and things we were able to clean up, and uh, now I don't know what it's like anymore. <laughs> I haven't been there for quite a while. You wouldn't recognize it. It is um, it is transformed into um, high end condominiums. And um, you know, um, uh, hipster bars and coffee shops. It's just, it's just it's incredible. You would be you should you should go back. You would you would be amazed. Well, they were starting the gentrification at the time um, I left, and a lot of it was coming over at the foot of the Williamsburg Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge. So right. I agree. I, I probably would not recognize it, um, but. I have no words to go back to New York quite honestly. Yeah. I'm happy where I am. Yeah, especially after after um um yesterday. I don't know if you heard about the the um the, the early winter storm that hit the city and paralyzed 
all of uh, the traffic for our Thursday evening commute. It was a it was a catastrophic um, storm that uh, it was the perfect storm that hit hit uh, right at the wrong time, and all the weather forecasts were wrong. And the mayor is getting um, getting his head handed to him today. Funny thing is because before I retired. Uh, there was a tremendous storm like that that actually shut down the subways and the trains. And the, I ended up having to take a bus to the Nassau County line and then have my husband drive to meet me there. Because nothing uh-huh. was running. So New York yeah. City is notorious for having that. And you mentioned in your book, I believe that was 2010 when Bloomberg was mayor, that the city just absolutely shut down. You couldn't get ambulances through there. People are actually dying. So New York City still cannot get it right. And this is what your book is about, preparedness. That's right. And, you know, um, it's, uh, you know, a lot of it really has to do with, um, you know, just its structure and the geography. I mean, you you know, when you put 8.4 million people on 300 square miles of dry land, um, which consists of three islands and a peninsula, um, most of it less than 50 feet above the waterline, you know, that's that, you know, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Right. And, and, uh, you know, so, so last night, um, as I said, the storm came in about one o'clock, it started to snow, everybody said fine. And then four or five o'clock it picked up, but by, by the middle of rush hour, the snow was coming down. And, um, and what happened was, uh, the, the, the ramps to the George Washington Bridge got icy, and there were a couple of accidents that that really um, shut the bridge down for a while. And that one that one uh, river crossing, because you know we have multiple river crossings, as you know, but that one impact had cascading effects all throughout Manhattan and all throughout the five boroughs. And so it's really a it's a it's a um, it's a it's a vulnerability problem. I mean, there's the, it's a it's a threat rich environment, and it is highly vulnerable to disruption. Um, not only on the roadways, but um, you know, power, um, you know, uh, uh, water, um, healthcare, all of these complex systems that support these mega cities. Are, are vulnerable to disruption and um, and when when one thing goes wrong it tends to cascade especially when you know when you have so many people in one small area well you know you have unique experience because you were the deputy commissioner at the New York City Office of Emergency Management you were there for 911 you were there for Hurricane Sandy. So you were the go-to guy that had to put together these teams. Yeah, and that, you know, it's it's uh, as as we say in the business, you know, um, you know, we owned the problem and and that's um, you know, in in reality and in New York City, um, you know, the 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 truth is that you know, in so many ways, NYPD owns the problem because they own the streets. And as you know, I mean, you own the streets, and um, and, and and in a in such a, an important way. But but when when the streets were secure and the safety issues were were and the security issues were resolved, um, then NYPD was was done. Their job was done. But 
you know, if, if there are if there are families standing on the street, you know, and they don't have, you know, they don't have a, a, a place to stay or they're they don't have power in their homes or they're seniors that are in their homes without without power, without their medications or without their their the you know, those the machines that keep them alive, you know, that that problem quickly becomes um, you know, it, it, it drops into into the mayor's lap, and so then it drops into into the emergency manager's lap. So it's the emergency manager. It, w- we always said owns owns the problem because the mayor owns the problem, and and um, and in New York, it, it was just um, you know it's hard because so many different things happen all the time. We went through in the period from from 2001 to to um uh to now to today to in 2018 i mean we've had um we've had heat waves we've had uh you know power outages uh that swept the city we've had we had a um we had an uh, a subway strike we had uh, there was a period of time where these massive tower cranes were were collapsing all across the east side of manhattan just you know seemed like every other week we had a tower crane collapse and uh, and we had uh, we we had a we had an earthquake once we had um, and we had Hurricane Irene Hurricane Sandy and um, you know so it it's just a it's it that kind of repetitive disasters um, teach you things and and that really is the 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 point of the book is to is to try to explain those lessons to people without them having to go through those actual disasters themselves. Well, you know, most Americans are not prepared. <clears throat> Ask how many of them even have a first aid kit within their home. And I guarantee 90% will not say. They may have a box of Band-Aids. That's it. But people are not prepared. Now, I live here in South Carolina now, and we sat through Matthew and the last two hurricanes because we were prepared. And by the way, just to mention to the listeners, I've got a new sponsor on the show. It's uh, my Patriot uh, Supplies. So check out my website. It's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Get their food. There's a new one out there, a package for two weeks uh, for just $75. I've got, I've got four weeks sitting in my kitchen floor right now. But people are not prepared. And that's, that's really important that people have to look around themselves and say, what happens if the power goes out? What happens if I don't have water? What happens is um, what it, that's the title of the book. It's the moment of truth, and it's the moment when you realize how um, short-sighted you've been by ignoring the fact that you knew you were going to be put in this spot someday. Somehow you would be here. You knew it, and then you, when you find yourself there, you're like, "God, I'm such a dummy. I knew this something like this was eventually going to happen. Why didn't I just?" buy that food kit. Why didn't I just buy that first aid kit? It would, you know, I had the I had the money. It wasn't expensive. All I had to do was go to Amazon and and click a couple of keystrokes and you know, why did I not or do to that? My website. Right. Or to my website. <laughs> right. And and you know, it, it doesn't take much and you know, it's a very painful time for people. It really is because these very simple things can dramatically improve outcomes in the moment. And and that's really what I encourage people to do. Put yourself in that moment and feel that 
feel that pain because it is a painful time, especially if you've put not only yourself at risk, but your family or your friends or somebody else. And even if you haven't, even if you, do, even if, um, you know, you, even if you live alone, if you have those things, you become, you know, those things are very valuable because you can assist others. You know, you become a, a, a very a powerful force for good. And, you know, if you've got a first aid kit when nobody else does, and that's really the the thing that the you know the everything changes in what I call the parallel universe when you're in the midst of disaster, right? Because um, you know you, you know things that you've ha- that that you attach a lot of value to suddenly have no value, and things that you really thought were you know pretty. Um, unimportant become become huge and so a thing like a first aid kit which you you know it just gathers dust in a corner you know becomes this this thing that's priceless because you can save lives with it um it's you know lots of things change and 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 again it's this isn't rocket science you know you tell someone that a first aid kit becomes valuable in a disaster they're going to say well of course it does but they're not acting as if it does Absolutely. We have a question in the chat room. This is something you do uh, cover in your book about man-made disruptions. Uh, You talk about terrorism. You talk about uh, the uh, lone shooter. uh, You talk about uh, a nuclear attack. EMPs is a very real threat to us. Uh, People forget it was just a handful of years that Iran tried to sail, 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 if it get the right tooth working here, sail a nuclear submarine to the eastern seaboard with a threat of an EMP exploding over the eastern eastern seaboard. These are real things we face every day that we have to consider being prepared for. Yeah, and 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 the, the actually the the and as you know the the book is layered with um, this imagined scenario, which is um, which is an, a, a, a nuclear attack. It's not an EMP necessarily. It's not a it's not an air burst, but it's a ground based attack with a nuclear device and um and the reason is because for me that's the worst case scenario the absolute worst case scenario but um the the point that i try to make is you know i don't blame people for not being prepared i don't blame people for for having that brick wall of hope in their minds i i, I just i don't because i think it's human nature so you know i mean i criticize people for it but i'm not surprised because it's it, you you're really just a product of of hum of of your human nature right and and because it is human nature to to have that brick wall of hope but uh you know on the other hand there are people like me people who get paid to prepare the government and prepare their organizations for disasters who are also complacent who also have that brick wall of hope and you know the these worst case scenarios like the nuclear threat there's nobody preparing the nation for that threat that's a fact. There's no nuclear response plan for the nation. There's nobody that has an ability to to bring the nation together in the aftermath of something like that. And you know, you, 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 that's unacceptable in my mind. How can that be when when you know we know that's a risk and we deal with it every day, and yet you know nobody's nobody's preparing the nation for it. No, they're not. We get so much red tape you get so much partisan bickering but instead of unifying under one idea as to make the nation safe no it's got to be partisan politics no matter where you go and it's not just on the federal level it's on the local level now 
we were talking earlier about the uh, wildfires out in California. That was a massive, massive foul-up, and they can go right smack up to the desk of Governor Moonbeam, Jerry Brown out there, for failing to pass legislation that would have protected the power lines that sparked and caused these three different fires at the same time. Yeah, and, you know, and for me, um, that kind of thing is, uh, you know, is – I call it a no-brainer. I mean, I don't know how you don't do those sorts of things, um, but um, but but you're right. It becomes a partisan issue. I mean, when you talk about this, or when, when not you, Anne, but when people talk about these things, and when I talk about you know um, how we need a national level plan that brings all 50 states together. If one uh, state is um, is overwhelmed, um, you know, people say, well, it's a it's a big government issue. It's a big government versus small government issue. It's not that at all. It's it's a it's it's just for me. It's it's an emergency management issue. That's my that's my profession. And uh, it's about us doing our jobs plain and simple and so if you bring politics into it you're 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 changing the subject because the subject is you know what's political about being able to to bring the resources of the nation together to help people who are trapped in the midst of catastrophe in my mind there's nothing political about that that's a that's an obligation yeah, and unfortunately politics did mire this whole thing going on in California you know it starts with where at one point the Native Americans would do controlled burns to keep the forest thin, to keep make sure there's no tinder to cause a wildfire. But with the tree huggers, you know, wanting to protect the spotted owl or whatever species it was, they no longer are doing that. So the forest yeah. will ripe with tinder. And then you add in power lines that should have been protected and preventing any sparking from lighting the tinder. The law was passed by California State House and Senate, but... Governor Moonbeam vetoed it. It was a perfect storm. And then you have people encroaching on wildlife. How many brand new homes have been built in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, probably in areas where there should not have been houses built? You know, you got man pushing himself upon nature and changing nature and not taking care of nature at the same time. Well, in fact, that area of, of, of Butte County where paradise used to be, um, you know, it has just, the population has just exploded over the last uh, decade in, in spite of the fact that it has endured, you know, one wildfire after another, after another. I mean, a, a, an average of every decade, a wildfire sweeps through that area of Butte County. And yet, and yet they keep coming back there and building. And, and, and not only that, but a lot of the folks are seniors. They're people with disabilities and special needs. And, you know, so it just, it, it just makes, it, it makes no sense. All right. I mean, because, and then what happens is, and this, you know, and you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate this, right? But, you know, you got the Butte County Sheriff's Department and they, they you know, that fire on, on November 8th, on Thursday morning, that, that uh, campfire, which now is, it's, it's, uh, it's by far the most destructive wildfire ever recorded in California history, started last uh, Thursday morning, you know, and it started very quickly. And, and, and Paradise is, is kind of on a hill surrounded by, hemmed in by canyons. And it started up the hill toward, 
toward paradise and the sheriff you know the sheriff's department they you know they have to get to the scene they have to they have to make decisions in the moment they have to they have to control the roadways they have to manage the evacuation and they have to message people about you know stay or go and it's impossible you can't do 15 things like that across a, a large scale all at the same time so they're put in an impossible position to to protect those people who put themselves in harm's way no, absolutely. And as I said, it was a perfect storm. Everything just came together at the same time. So now you have three wildfires simultaneously going on in California. And it should be a, a lesson to not just California, but to the rest of the nation for preparedness. Know right. about you know, escape routes. And their roads, because they're up on the side of this mountain, the roads were not very, very much. You, you couldn't go anywhere. That's right. There were four four little log tr- logging trails up, uh, you know, going up there, and and that really was the issue. You know, they they knew that if they if they messaged, I don't know, I think the population is twenty two thousand or something like that. If you message to put twenty two thousand people onto those four roads all at the same time, nobody's going anywhere, and that's ultimately what happened. Um, you know, and so that th- you know that that's. That's the problem, and and you know we've got that same corollary. You know, just just pick pick a city. I mean, pick pick San Francisco, pick New York City, pick Seattle, pick any large city, um, and and you have the same situation. Yeah, there's a question in the chat room that uh, from Gary. As I'm reading the articles on these three fires, it looks like all three were sparked by electrical. Uh, either sparks, surges, or whatever. Uh, it's going directly back to the utility companies, uh, which the utility companies actually warned them that this was a possibility, didn't they? Well, the utility companies, um, you know, we went, you know, in the, over the past 15 years, I've worked with them, um, and and they they are. Um, you know, in in terms of the spectrum of preparedness and and uh, and and response, I mean, they, I, I hold them in pretty high regard. I mean, if you think about what they do after hurricanes, and they have their, they have mutual aid crews that sweep in and and restore. So they they understand the, their infrastructure. They understand what what uh, you know the risks that are there. They understand you know how how money needs to be invested to do that. Um, you know, and they're not blameless by any means, but um, you know, I mean, if if the utility company tells you that you need to you need to do X, Y, and Z to uh, to to uh, avoid you know sparking a wildfire, I don't know how you don't do it. Exactly, exactly. And the worst part is, is that today, in today's day and age. We rely on technology so much. Oh, the biggest problem they have with these over 600, they estimate 631 people are still unaccounted for. Uh, their inability, because now the cell phones don't work, or if they had a landline, it doesn't work. If they had a computer, they no longer have their email address because they don't have access to it. Uh, you hear story after story of people trying to contact, reach out to friends and relatives, but they can't because we rely on technology. It's 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 a it's a um, uh, it's so true and and in in the book uh, one of the first chapters there's a there's a um, there's a a story about the the great seamless disaster and um, seamless it's also called Grubhub but it's a it's an app 
on a, on your phone that you can order food for uh, on and you know I I have I have two kids they're 22 and 18 and um you know my my kids think that you know getting on the phone and calling the Chinese restaurant and ordering food is some kind of horrendously difficult work effort like they <laughs> you know and and, and and you know actually dialing pushing the buttons and talking is is out out of the question you know and so um you know and and so you know they can as long as they can do it on the app then it's then it's fine and and so what do they do they do a couple of keystrokes on an app and food and it's prepared delicious food magically appears in front of the door <laughs> how 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 far removed from from you know uh uh have we how far have we come i mean my both of my great grandmothers on both sides their stories my dad and my mom both tell the story of their grandmothers both uh, had um uh um wooden stumps out in the backyard and they would take chickens out and cut the chickens heads off and pluck the chickens and cook the chickens you know and 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 prepare the chickens i mean th- that that is much closer you know to 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 the human reality that we could be facing than 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 grubhub or seamlessness and so you know but my grandmothers um, my 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 wife's grandmother actually in the depression you know she, in the Great Depression she had a cow and she had this and she had that so that's resilience in my mind you know the fact that you can you know you can you can actually you know kill your food and 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 prepare your food and or you have a, you have some means of creating food um, you know that's 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 resilience um n- not being able to eat when the seamless app goes down is n- is an example of uh, of a lack of resilience and 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 that's unfortunately where where we're getting to is that everybody thinks that everything that they ever will need is it that is 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 from the interface on the, on the, on their iPhone that's going to bite us eventually that's going to hurt us because um that that uh, interface is not always going to work no, it's funny because I don't think of myself as a prepper. It's just that I grew up in a family where you you tried to stay one step ahead, try to prepare. You can't prepare for every single circumstance, but be as prepared as possible. Because uh, when Matthew came through here, we had the generator up and running. Uh, we had I had I can a lot of my own food. You know, I have soups and sauces and stuff, and I have stuff in the freezer. So we were able to run. Uh, two refrigerators with the freezers going and a deep freeze. Uh, we had ga- propane for the gas grill. We had uh, wood stocked up so that if we ran out of propane, we can put the, the grill into the fireplace. We have a special grate that goes into the fireplace where we cook food inside the fireplace using wood, which we've done before. It makes an excellent steak, trust me, really nice and tender. <laughs> so we were prepared. We we had the uh, kerosene lamps. We had candles. We had the TV going. I was able to get the internet up, so we were fully functioning. And when Matthew hit, we had neighbors that stayed that were not prepared, and they smelt our food, so we invited them over. Come on, we have plenty for you to eat. These people hadn't eaten for two days until they smelt us cooking. You know, we went and checked on all of our neighbors, and just to make sure that anyone that did stay, they were okay. But this is, this is what people are not prepared to do, to be self-sufficient. It's such a great story, you know, and I think that, um, you know, like you said, the the 
the downside of that is, you know, if there was even a worse situation than than Matthew, um, you know, you'd have you'd have those neighbors and their neighbors and everybody's neighbors. You know, you'd have them all sort of, you know, crowded outside your house like zombies. You know, I mean, it, it's um, that's that's well. In that case, we were locked and loaded. True. Good. Trust me. Uh, you know, and you need to be in some in some cases. Street, he came over. He came over. He says, "I'm locked and loaded. Do you need anything?" I says, "No, we're locked and loaded. I've got four of them locked and loaded, and and at hand by. So if anyone comes around and tries to loot, we're prepared. Trust me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I, I don't know. You know, there, there is. So just, just on the on the preparedness thing, I, I was at a. Um, there was a. There was this. National Disaster Leadership Program at, at Harvard, and um, it was largely a waste of of time. But there was one um, there was one professor there that came in. He was a Harvard professor, and he and he spends um, all of his time um, conducting surveys. He's a he's a he's an expert surveyor, so he 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 gauges opinion. He he understands what people think, and so he they had one project where they were trying to figure out you know, about why people prepare and don't prepare and what, what they're thinking. And, and, um, and, and, uh, I'll never forget at the end, his, his, his summary statement was we've concluded through this research that, um, that your, um, your disaster preparedness programs where you try to encourage people to prepare are largely wasted effort. Um, and, and the reason for that is because people, they they don't prepare. The only there's there's there are only uh, two types of people that prepare, and one is is the preppers that you talked about, and these are people who are just somehow psychologically inclined to prepare. And the other the other subset of people that do prepare are people who themselves have been impacted directly impacted by disaster. Um, th- those not not even if even if your next door neighbor was directly impacted, you will not prepare. Only if you yourself have been directly impacted. So, so that you know just tells me that you know eventually everybody will be prepared, um, but it may take all of us being impacted by by disasters before it'll happen. That's interesting. <clears throat> Very interesting. You know, so how do we get our municipalities to be prepared? Because one of the problems we had here is that our county thought they were prepared for the hurricane coming through, but when it actually hit, they were not. And it caused a huge boondog, whether or not people can get in to do cleanup, whether or not people can come back to their homes. They had no game plan. And that's really the part of the, the the intent of the book is that you know they need to be those those local governments. You know, if you if you ask FEMA or you ask your state emergency management agency who owns the disaster and who needs to be prepared, they're going to say, well, it's the local government. And so the problem, though, is the local government is under resourced to do that. They don't have what we call the bandwidth to do that. And so. In the book, I call out a thing called the. I, I, so, so there's a there's a phrase in my business, and it's uh, it's all disasters are local, and you, you'll hear it a lot. You'll hear, 
You know, Brock Long is the FEMA administrator. He says it all the time. He says, you know, disasters start and end locally. There, and th- and that's really just a way for him to, to avoid, uh, you know, accountability. He just points to the local and says it's their problem. But, but um, so I have a thing in the book called the All Disasters Are Local Index, where I have a metric. And uh, and and it's really depending on the the population, you know, how many full time emergency management staff do you need to 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 drive the programs that you need? And and the minimum is really seven. I mean, you need seven. And so if you look at your your you you look at your um your own your own town or your own county, um, you know, and you if you walked into the your county. I don't know, your county executive or whoever it is that's your local elected official, and you said, you know, we need seven people, they would look at you like you're crazy. There's no way they have the money or the resources to fund seven people. Um, and that's the minimum. That's the minimum number. If it's a big county, if it's, you know, if it's a big city, you know, you might need 10 or 20 or 40 or 100. And, um, you know, the the but but the the tax base can't sustain it. Um, and, and so people say, well, you know, it's too hard. You, you, you can't do it. And, and I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, um, that's, that's not my problem. I mean, I, I didn't say it was going to be easy. I just said, this is what you need because it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a continuous process. What we do in the background is build. So, so the, 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 the substance of it is that, you know, if there is, if in these disasters, you, you, you have to do two things. Your county or your city or your town has to do two things, two big things. One is it has to continue to provide those essential services that, you know, that keep people alive. That's like running their 911 system and keeping, you know, law enforcement on the ground and continuing to fight fires. They have to continue to do that. The second thing they have to do is they have to battle the the, the impacts of the disaster itself. So if there's flooding or if there's re- rescues that have to happen or if there's if there are, you know, um, if they have to, to, uh, to, to knock on doors in affected areas or they have to, you know, uh, stabilize buildings or whatever. So, so that's the other thing is they have to address the impact of the disaster. And so that second part, you know, you need you need teams of people, you need your disaster teams. And so what we do is we pull people out of their normal org charts into this what we call the incident org chart, this incident organization, and it's a team. So we build these teams and we have to build them in advance because if you try to pull people onto a team in the midst of the disaster, they're going to they're going to feign confusion. You know, they're they're going to act, they're going to give you a million excuses and they're going to run away. So you have to you have to start and and ease them into it. You for you give them the scenario and you tell them this is what you're going to be doing and they they they'll deny it or they'll go in, but but eventually they'll they'll wrap their minds around it and so that's a continual process it has to happen every day it has to happen when when I got got to the office of emergency management it was five months after Katrina hit and uh, you know the mayor was looking at what happened in in New Orleans and and they said we cannot let that happen here so it became my job to build the coastal store plan it took us seven years before we got it into a minimum level. Uh, we had the teams built to provide a minimum level of functionality. So that's not happening in your city, in your county. It's not happening because you don't have people that that are doing it every day, all day, 
um, with with your with your government. It's you know it, it's you have to use the government in a different way, and that's what these people have to do. And it's unfortunately you know we just don't have the bandwidth to do it. But uh, but if you look at places that have been hit. So, you know, Houston, for instance, has, has, has an excellent emergency management program, and that's because they got hit with, uh, with, with uh, Ike and then Hurricane Mitch before that. And then so when Harvey hit, they were ready, you know. So that's what it takes. Well, that and also practicing the scenarios over and over again, because you talk about in your book – that when someone is hit with a disaster, they, they go into a brain freeze. That's what I call it, a brain freeze. And right. then they hit this area where, as you call it, the parallel universe. They're not able to think rationally or react rationally. 100%. And, you know, Anne, I mean, I think, you know, nobody understands that better than a police officer, right? Because, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, you, you know, a police officer gets transported into that parallel universe in, a, in, in these, these many parallel universes multiple times in their career. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, and it, it, you, you have to have a, um, you have to have a, a, um, tough mental capacity to, to not have that brain freeze. And, 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 um, Everybody does. I mean, I'm doing this now nearly 20 years, and even even today, when there's a when there's a crisis that hits suddenly, I still feel that brain freeze, and I still ask the, you know, it's the voice in your head that tells you, you, you know, th- well, you know, this is the big one, right? You're going to screw this one up. You know, you're not smart enough for this. This is this is where it all comes. You know, this is where people find out that you you actually don't have any idea what the hell you're doing. You know, and and uh, and you've got to fight through that and then you you take one step and you take another step and and uh and eventually you you succeed but 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 some don't and and that's the thing about the parallel universe some people step up and some people step down i've seen people that that just um they just throw in the towel and they walk away and they say i'm you know i'm done i'm i've I've decided this is not for me um and that happens too well you know when people do get hit with a disaster then they go into the mode where it's either blame or shame. Well, that's it, right? And and um, you know, and that's it, it's we're seeing that in California now with the blame, you know, and uh, uh, the finger pointing. Um, after every disaster, there's a there's lots and lots of finger pointing. In fact, I just saw it. Uh, Today, um, after the snowstorm yesterday, the fingers are pointing, um, and and a lot of it's politics. You know, the mayor is this mayor is um, on you know is a member of a political party, and the members of the opposite political party are are saying you know that it was a complete failure of government. You you failed, and um, and so some of that is politics, but some of it's real too. I mean, you know, when we were uh, in that 2010 snowstorm. You know, when those when those ambulances were stuck in the street and the patients were stuck in the ambulances, you know, there was there was absolute failure there. So that's that's not a political statement. It's a it's a true statement. What happened in Katrina? Um, you know, that was a f- complete failure of government at every level. Um, that's not a political statement. It's a it's just a statement of fact. Um, and I don't think that fixing it, um, you know, it should be should be a political um, or a partisan exercise. Um 
But, you know, uh, there, you know, anytime and anyone who's in Louisiana knows uh, in any, any, everything in Louisiana is politics. Right. So there is there there is, you know, there there is a, a party thing going on. In fact, so, some of the communications problems that they had had to do with political parties. And, you know, this is the, the, the federal the federal government at the time was was uh, was uh, George W. Bush. And um, you know the, the the state government was a democratic government, and it was a democratic mayor of New Orleans. So that that definitely plays into it. It does. And when I was reading your book, you know, I, I was remembering as what was going on back then, and how ironic where people are waiting for FEMA to come in, and people are screaming on the ground, "Where's FEMA? Where's FEMA?" Well, FEMA can't go in until someone gives them a written request. And then you can expect them to come in five days, two weeks later. FEMA's not going to be the first responders going into a disaster. They're actually the last ones in. They are the last ones in. That's that is that is so true. But I think that you know one of FEMA's problems is that they um, is that they um, love the spotlight. You know, and uh, you know, you see disaster movies, and, they, and and FEMA FEMA people are there, and uh, and you know, the the their administrators get on television in, in in the disaster. They become the face of the disaster, and yet and yet they're always the last people in. This is what I don't. This is what I don't get, and that's what confuses people. Um, you know, it, it, it confuses even states and locals. I mean, a lot of states think, oh, you know. If I need something, FEMA will be there and they'll bring it. And uh, you know, and I've dealt with FEMA for 20 years. And I'll tell you, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, it'll be too little and too late if you wait for FEMA. Just there's just no two ways about it. So relying on FEMA is is a is a is an absolute recipe for failure. Um, and everybody that that has ever uh, uh, experienced that knows it. And I I, t- I talk in the book about. Florida, you know, we spent a lot of time when I when I was building the coastal storm plan, we went and talked to everybody that that uh, dealt with hurricanes, and we spent a lot of time in Florida, and we made a lot of friends down there because you know, at the time Florida had been you know hit with one hurricane after the other, and and uh, you know uh, Chuck Hagen, who's the, the logistics head of the state of Florida, said to me one time, he said, you know, to us, you know, FEMA is just another vendor. You know, we don't rely on FEMA. Um, we built our own uh, capability. We know we're going to be on our own, and so everybody, every and 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 you know, Anne, you talked about that when you talked about you know what you do in your in your own home. I mean, that's what everybody's mentality should be. Just think, think about what would happen if you were on your own, on your own. You know, because that this assumption that other people are going to kind of come and help you, you know, that's, you're going to be disappointed. I, 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 if there's one thing I can guarantee, you will be disappointed if you rely, if you're relying on other people to help you. Um, but you, you may not be disappointed if you work to, to rely on yourself. That, that, that's your, that's, that's your opportunity. Yeah, that's true. You know, what we did is we made ourselves a checklist. My husband went, you know, fighting, kicking and screaming, but I made a checklist in so much as even to have pots, my stock pots, all full of water. I had two bathtubs full of water in case, you know, we do not have water. We can still at least flush the toilets and we had water that we could boil for drinking. You know, 
people have to think about what is it you use every day that shouldn't be taken away from you that you're able to use an alternative. You know, you were talking about uh, your grandmother, you know, uh, cleaning the uh, chickens. I actually have a cookbook that was my grandmother's, actually my great-grandmother's from 1898 that tells me, should I be put in that situation and should I need to catch something to eat? It tells me how to dress it. I may have not ever done it before, but at least I got a book here that I can sit back and, and read because back in 1898, guaranteed when they did this, they didn't have electricity. So I would be doing it the same way that they did it back then. If people have to make a checklist and say, what do I need in my daily life? Even medications. We made sure all our prescriptions were filled ahead of time. You know, Things like that that people can protect themselves because if you wait for government to do it, nine times out of ten, you're going to be let down, right? Ten times out of ten. <laughs> and I got my friend, friend Kel in the in the uh, chat room said two bathtubs, fancy. Well, now actually it's uh, one shower, one bathtub. Uh, we had a major water damage, so we replaced it with a walk-in shower because both my husband and I are disabled. So we have to consider that on also. You know, mm-hmm. is he going to be able to step in to to clean himself? You know. But, you know, one shower or one bathtub now. So we're down to one and one. But it's important <laughs> that people prepare. But then again, hold the feet to the fire of government. Ask your, your representative, what are you doing for disaster preparedness? Is there a plan that we can look at so we can work with you should it be necessary? You know, and that really is is true. And, I, uh, you know, I think that... Uh, that's the best way to hold them accountable is to ask them those questions. You know, what is the plan? And I, and I, and in the book, I describe that in, 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 at a high level of detail, you know, the questions that you should ask and how you should ask them. And, you know, not, not in a confrontational way, but just say, you know, you know, what is the plan? What's the plan for this? And what's the plan for that? And, you know, and you're going to get blank stares, but if enough people do it, you know, you're going to prompt government to to um, to do its job, and um, you know, I think that the the you know we talked about our you know I talked about how you know it's a it's a it's a money issue, it's a budget issue to try to get because it's people, only people can can build the the kinds of teams that you need because people are going to be the ones that are going to have to act in the moment, um, but you know it uh, in my mind. It, it 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 actually saves you money because it makes government better at everything it does and more efficient at what it does and that's what we need with government you know i mean um you know i i i loved working for new york city government i think it was it was an exciting place to work it was a relatively um uh functional in in many ways not all of it there's plenty of places of, of new york city government that are dysfunctional highly dysfunctional but you know, as I go around the nation um, and I look at other governments, you know that dysfunctionality is um, you know you see it more and more and more and um, and 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 uh, you know outside the u s you know you go to 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 other countries and um, it's astonishing you know how how dysfunctional governments are and and one of the reasons you know well there are many reasons and i'm not this this is now I'm outside my area of expertise but you know, governments are are um, often, you know, laden with the the cronies of the of the politicians, and so they're not there based on on their on their on their capability, and so you get a lot of 
people that don't have the skills to do the jobs that you need. And, and, um, you know, I think that's a that that's a service to that's a service to those people because they have jobs, but it's a disservice to the public because they don't have, you know, the government that they need. That's true. Now, your book is really, really fascinating, and it's moment of truth, the nature of catastrophes, and how to prepare for them. Because you speak, you know, you were there at Ground Zero, and you were working with these guys. You had certain rules and things. Uh, At one point, you needed wash stations, you know, people so they can wash their hands because of all the the dust and everything else there, just simply to do something as simple as washing. Uh, And no one knew what to do. But you thought outside of the box, and this is also important in a disaster, being able to think outside of the box. It's so important, it, and, and, and it's, it's, it is, it's really everything, um, because in a disaster, there's nothing but questions. It is, it, it's, just, it's just a series of questions, and, and you know, everybody's like, well, you know, who's got the answers? Well, you know, y- you've got to come up with the answers, and that, that is the, that's the single biggest challenge, you know, that there, there are no answers, and, and, and so you've got to come up with them, and, and, um, and that is a challenge because, you know, I describe in the book – you know, I, I talk about the the, uh, the parallel universe and, and the and the crisis. The crisis being this monster, this dragon that has to be slayed. And what the what the crisis does is it it um, it starts by destroying your higher level thinking, and you drop into um, you know uh, in, into you know your what what we call your lizard brain, right? So you 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 lose the ability for higher level thinking. And the reason is 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 physical because you know the Adrenaline is flowing and the cortisone is flowing and, and all of these 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 hormones that that come from from you know our ancestry when we were when we were hunter gatherers and and when a crisis hit we you know we we had to either fight or we had to run that fight or flight and that comes from those hormones that surge through your system but that it takes all of your the blood out of your brain and it puts it into your muscles and into your into your organs and so you can't think very clearly and just at the time when you think when you need most to think and so that's where planning comes in you know that's where you know that that constant exercising um and in, in, in the scenarios and like you said you know you 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 put yourself in the scenario and you and you force yourself to think and you force yourself to solve problems in the moment that's those exercises are are essential um you know there's a lot of people in my business that sit around in meetings and they talk and in my mind that's it's just it's it's a lot of wasted time because you know you talk as if you know you're going to be um, you know uh, uh, confronting the same things that you confront in normal life when you when 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 everything changes so there's a way to do it you know there's a way to prepare there's a there are techniques that we learned in New York that are, that I've written in the book and everybody really needs to do it um, you know to 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 try to lessen the impact of that moment of truth when they find themselves in the in the disaster. Eventually, you're gonna you're gonna find yourself there. I mean, you know, like it or not, you found yourself there um, uh, this summer, um, and right. I mean, with with uh, well, it was last year, wasn't it? Last summer with Matthew. Last last year we had two of them back to back, but this 
this past year, it was nothing. I mean, we were laughing. People had closed businesses down, fled like crazy, and we got a brief shower out of the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we saw and it. We it, were, it, it. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I was tracking it on storm track, so I was looking at the projected pass, so I was seeing that it was going to miss. But, you know, everyone else was just, you know, panicking. You know, if people just pay attention, then they'll know what type of danger they're in. You know, and we we saw because you're in South Carolina, right? Yes. Yeah, and we we thought that first of all, we thought it was a it was a uh, cat four or cat five that was going to hit North Carolina, but everything we saw said, well, um, South Carolina is the watershed for North Carolina, so all that rain that falls is going to go and flow down into South Carolina and wash South Carolina away. That that was the that, those were the stories that we were being told. Well, that did actually happen in the Myrtle Beach area. I'm further south. I'm halfway between Charleston and Savannah, and I'm okay. tucked in. So yeah. the last major hurricane that made complete late landfall here was 1860. No. 1865 or 1950. There was two that hit. I think, believe 1865 and 1950, which the last time anything hit me where I'm at. So the chance of it happening, yes, it's possible, but if you just pay attention to the storm track, uh, you are prepared, you won't have a problem. And that, that's that's exactly right. And I think that that is a, a really key point is paying attention. I think a lot of people don't really pay attention. And, um, you know, I do a lot of, in my business, we do a lot of weather forecasting. Um, unfortunately, we, we, we missed the weather forecast yesterday, but typically we're, we're right on. And I'll send out a weather forecast to my organization. I'll send it to about, about 3,000 people, and I'll tell them, this is what's going to happen tomorrow night at 5 o'clock. It's going to start like this, and then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. And then it plays out just like that. And people come to me, and they say, you are amazing. You're a magician. How do you see the future like that? And I say, I go to the Weather Service website, and I read what it says. You know, so it's not <laughs> rocket science. Um, you know, it, it, it's, no. um, it, it, it's, it's just about paying attention. Yeah, and I happen to like stormtrack.org, and I found it extremely accurate if you knew which model and how to follow the models and how to read them. I'm not a, a meteorologist. I just, if I don't know something, I'm going to learn. I'm no expert, but hey, it's kept us safe all these years. I'm yeah. looking at the clock. We're down to our last few minutes. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you? So um, you can get a hold of me on, on LinkedIn. Um, it's, uh, uh, my name, Kelly McKinney, and, um, that's, that's probably the best way. And I'm also on Twitter and, um, my book is on, is on Twitter. It's called moment of truth. And, uh, that's also available on amazon.com. And, uh, if anybody uh, does decide to, to buy it either uh hard copy or on Kindle, I would, uh, I would love it if they would give it a review. It's, um, you know, I'd love to hear people's thoughts about it. Yeah, I always have a kick because you know, I go to the mailbox and I find there's a book in the mailbox, and I'm going, all right, who sent this? Because nine times out of ten, your agents don't include a post, a business card, or a note or anything. Um, 
So it's always fun when I do find a new author and someone that I have so so much in common with. So uh, if you do run across the current PBA president over there, Patty, uh, just tell him I send my regards because he was in my squad. He's a friend. Right? (laughs) Is that Pat Lynch? Yeah. Yes. No kidding! Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's a he's a, he's a he's a prominent figure around here. So he was in your squad, was he? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. I got some stories that I'm not going to tell out of school about Patty when he was in the squad. But he's. Oh, I wish you would. We love him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I I treasure his friendship too much. I don't want to get in trouble with him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. And, well, it's an excellent book, Kelly, and I really enjoyed reading it and uh, holding up to the camera so people can see that I've got it dog-eared left and right, uh, all the notes I made in it. Uh, I recommend people to read it, especially if they want to be prepared for any upcoming disaster, because you cover everything, like I said, from the shooter to uh, natural disasters to terrorism. You, you, you covered it all in your book, and uh, it actually made me flash back to a point where I owned a travel agency out in Westbury uh, back in 19... Anyway, uh, (laughs) I was partners with my mother at that time, and I had not been in the office on that particular day, and in come a bunch of guys with with guns and held them up, and they were in there to steal the airline tickets, and they were going to sell them on the black market. And I happened to call the office as this was going down, And because my mother and I had an understanding, she would answer the phone in a certain way if there was something happening that needed me to call 911. And within just a couple of quick questions, I understood that she had how many men were in there, that they were armed. And all that she did was answer yes or no questions. I was able to hang up, dial 911, and within moments, all three were arrested and sent off to jail. Oh, my goodness. You have to have a plan. Yeah. That's int- that, that is a great plan to have. You know, I think every it's, it's funny, you know, everybody should think about that where, you know, they're, they call a family member and there's a code word that they say that indicates that they're in trouble, but they can't verbalize what it is. And then you go back and forth with those yes, no questions. That is that's that's if you don't mind. And I'm going to take that. I'm going to put that in my next book. I'm writing that down. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've got more to tell you. <laughs> Long before I became a cop, all the, all the things we did, how we got a bunch of people sent to jail who were trying different con jobs with us. Yeah. That's great. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Kelly, it has been a pleasure, and I welcome you back anytime. Feel free to give me a shout whenever you or John want you to come back on. You got it, and thank you so much. Great talking to you. Again, God bless. Enjoy your weekend. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Kelly McKinney, uh, check out his book, Moment of Truth. That's all we got for today, guys. I'm sorry Curtis didn't join us. He's still out there doing the recount, I guess. I want to thank everyone that was up in the chat room that was also participating over on Facebook and YouTube. Um, Sorry I screwed up without Curtis being here, but I did the best I can. (laughs) Anyway, we will be back here on, um, on Tuesday. And Tuesday, we've got, who the heck do we have? Oh, we've got my friend Mike Cutler and a new guest, Quentin Kramer. Uh, so we've got great shows lined up for next week. want to thank everyone that has been with us. So until then, I'm going to leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So I say good night, 
and God bless and have a safe weekend.